Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Matthew 7 verse 1 begins and says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you will use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his sons ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We serve a great God. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. One of the most uh, helpful uh, and wise things my wife ever did for me came uh, uh, one of the first year or two we were, we were married. Uh, we were on vacation with my, my family, my, my, my parents and my siblings uh, down in Florida, and after dinner, we went out to a place similar to the Santa Monica Pier, and they had uh, this ride that, um, like, you got in this, like, little pill-looking box, and the box was twirled around and around and around like a Ferris wheel, but also the little box spun while it was going like this. And my brother saw that and said, Alex, let's do that. And my wife immediately was like, don't, don't do that. And I, at that point, I was like, nobody tells me what to do. Um, you know, I'm not going to cower out from my brother. And so I absolutely got on the ride. And about 10 seconds into it, realized this was a very bad idea. And proceeded to, um, let's just say, regret the moment later. And after I get off and uh, have visible evidence that I should have not gotten on the ride, my wife just looked at me and just said, Alex, you are done with roller coasters. You know, about 15 to 20 years ago, in American culture, uh, one of the highest values that we had in society was tolerance. That you just tolerated everything that everybody believed, and if you didn't, you were a harsh, judgmental person. But what's happened, fascinating, in the last 10 years is how we've tried to keep that value and also had this growing value that says there are lots of beliefs, there are lots of things that people hold to and do that we cannot tolerate at all, and we ought to cancel them. And so what happens is you, if you engage in public culture and you engage it all with your beliefs in anything around the world, it just feels like you're on this roller coaster of tolerate this. No, get rid of that person. We should like them. We can't have them in society anymore. And you find yourself 
uh, over and over engaging, watching the news, looking on social media, and finding yourself going from liking something, being hopeful, to angry and cynical in a matter of seconds. And it just feels like you're on this roller coaster and you just want to withdraw. And what Jesus wants to give us this, in this, this passage this morning is to say, look, if you want to follow me, what a Christian needs to do is to get off that roller coaster, to be done with it. That our Christians are not people that ought to get caught up in the social, cultural roller coasters of just permitting everything and then canceling everyone and going back and forth and back and forth in a socially, emotionally exhaustive manner. And if you want to get off that roller coaster and you're tired of it like me, there's three things in this text that will help you walk away from that. Jesus tells us a warning for judging. Then he gives us eyes for correcting. But thirdly, then he gives us a heart for healing. And that's what you need to kind of get off the roller coaster. Let me show you what I mean. First, he gives us a warning for judging. So this whole text is about dealing with issues in our lives and other people's lives. But the first thing he wants us to do is to warn us about judging. He says this in verse 1, judge not lest you be judged. Now, the immediate reading of that makes you ask the question, is Jesus saying never have an opinion on anything? Like we should just get rid of the courts because there's places in church history where people have interpreted it and thought that's what Jesus means. We should never be able to engage in something like this. But that can't be what it means because if you get to verse 6, he says, do not give uh, what is holy to dogs and do not cast your pearls to pigs. Which what he's doing there, and we'll get to it later, is he's absolutely having an opinion. He's absolutely saying uh, there are points in life where you should judge a situation. What he's doing here, when he says, judge not lest you be judged, is he's drawing out a difference that you and I need to draw out. And that there is a sharp, realistic distinction between rendering a verdict on who someone is and the difference between what someone did or what's happening in the world. See, who someone is and what they've done are two drastically different things, and Jesus wants to protect us from one of them. What he wants to protect us from is what John Stott calls in his commentary, censoriousness. That is a habitual fault-finder lifestyle. That's somebody who finds their place in this world by standing over other people. See, when Jesus gives us this warning for judging, here, here's what he's doing. He's trying to protect all of us from climbing up the ladder of self-righteousness. See, anytime you engage somebody, whether it be out in the world or here in the church, who believes or practices or does something that disagrees with your beliefs or moments, you have a choice. See, you have a choice to look at it and deal with it either uh, in them personally ways or stepping back and trying to render the situation from a wise point of view. But our natural impulse immediately is to want to look at somebody who disagrees with us or does something that harms people and not just 
move into what they're doing, but move into them. So that if you believe something or you practice something that I disagree with, my impulse is not just to say, I don't think you should be doing that or I don't think that's wise, but to say, I don't just like those, dislike those things, I dislike you. And every time we do that, we're taking some sort of step up a ladder that doesn't just distance us from the things that people believe. It distances us from people. And the further that you get away from people, the less human they look. And the less human they look, the easier it is to do something horrible to them without any conscience whatsoever. And here's what you and I have got to get in touch with. Some of the worst things that have ever happened in this world came out of absolutely moral convictions. They came out of social beliefs of what they thought was best for society, what they thought was best for people individually, and they felt so strongly about them. They leaned into the convictions and they leaned into the beliefs, but they kept climbing up that ladder until the people who they disagreed with no longer ever looked like somebody who had a soul. And so it wasn't just easy to disagree with them, it was easy to get rid of them. David Brooks, the New York Times uh, columnist, has an article called The Cruelty of the Call-Out Culture, where he found this girl, Emily, who uh, made a comment on Facebook in like 2011. And some guy found that comment that was a little bit socially insensitive and uh, made it come to light, made it go viral, and ruined her job, ruined her relationships, ruined everything going on in her life. And when the guy was interviewed, here's what he said about destroying this girl's Emily's life. He says, no, I don't care what happens to her. I don't care because it's obviously something she deserved. And it's something that's been coming. I literally do not care what happens to her after the situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, or whatever. And here's what Brooks says. He says, the problem with the pseudo-realism of the call-out culture is that it is so naive. See, once you adopt binary thinking in which people are categorized as good or evil, once you give random people the power to destroy lives without any process, you have taken one step towards Rwandan genocide. Even the quest for justice can turn into barbarianism if it is not infused with a quality of mercy, an awareness of human frailty, and a path to redemption. The crust of civilization is thinner than you think. See, here's the warning of that censoriousness spirit that Stott's talking about and the warning of judging that Jesus is talking about. When we step into those roles, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the place only God should be. And when you assume that position, you and I are taking one step closer to something like genocide, where you can just eliminate and destroy somebody's life without even having a conscience about it. And Jesus is trying to warn Christians My people, the people who are about me, who believe in what I'm going to do for them, you have got to step away from that. 
He gives us the warning for judging. But secondly, he gives us eyes for correcting. See, once you sort of meditate on that, and if you hear what Jesus is saying, I mean, it's very fair to sort of have the belief, um, well, should we just never have an opinion at all? Like, should we just withdraw out to a rural society and all be like the Amish and never engage in culture whatsoever, lest we become like that? But, but the problem with that mentality is one thing that we've learned in society, both outside the church and inside the church, is that one of, what is so painful is not just experiencing hurt and pain, but the silence and the cover-up around the pain. Have you seen, I mean, you've seen this just, just inside the church. We've seen this in the Catholic church and in other denominations recently on the East Coast where painful things of abuse, sometimes in a sexual manner, have happened. And the outrage and the pain isn't just that those things could happen in the church, but that leaders and people involved in it just turned a blind eye to it. That is, they didn't judge, they didn't engage, they didn't do anything about it. And what we've learned from our culture and we're learning here in this text is we cannot think that Jesus' language of do not judge just means be quiet. That you and I have to look at things in the world that are broken, that are dysfunctional, that are painful, with eyes of correction. And if we're going to do that, you've got to see what Jesus says in this text. And in order to get eyes of correction, he gives us two illustrations, the planks and the specks and the pearls and the pig that are really brilliant. And that gives us eyes for correction, for how to do this, not like cancel culture, but also in a way that says we will not be silent on these things. And to get out of these illustrations, here, here's what they do. To have eyes of correction, you, A, you have to have humility. So Jesus gives this, his, actually it's a hysterical um, illustration here of the planks and the specks. Because he says, I mean, imagine this situation. Imagine I'm talking to you, and uh, you're just kind of going like this because you clearly have something in your eye, like an eyelash or a piece of dirt or something, and, and you're kind of poking around. And I walk up to you with a 40-foot pole coming out of my face. And I just say, hey, do you have something wrong with your face? I mean, you're going to hear that and think, are you serious right now? <laughs> Like, what is wrong with you? How in the world could you even begin to see that? And what, what Jesus is drawing out with this illustration is that you and I have a natural propensity to be blind and lack self-awareness to our own issues, to our own problems in life. And what that does is it gives us a lack of humility in the way that we could ever deal with other people. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his essays called Charity and His Fruits, he says, the natural human heart is incredibly charitable to itself and very sober to our neighbors. So that if we do something that's hurtful or painful to other people, uh, that causes them something disruptive in their own life, 
we have the tendency uh, to go, well, you don't know the context, or you don't understand what's been going on in my life, or what I've been dealing with, uh, or you don't know the full story or all the details. But when someone else does it, we immediately go, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Where do you think you're coming from? And we will be unbelievably sober and abrupt on them, but very charitable to our own hearts. And what the gospel calls us to do, Edward says, is to reverse it. To begin to look at things in our own life in an incredibly sober way and things in other people's lives in a very charitable way. So that what happens is issues in other people's lives, the illustration says this, They look like specks in people's eyes. And issues in our own life, they look like planks coming out of our face. See, if you want to have eyes of correcting, you have to have a humility about you that sees issues in the church and around the world where what's going on with you is both a priority and at a magnitude level way more serious and way more clear than what we go on with other people. So that you probably think the major problem in the world is not outside but inside. G.K. Chesterton was a professor at Oxford University, a colleague of C.S. Lewis, And he won an essay contest for the London Times in the early 1940s on a question that said, what is wrong with the world? Hundreds of people sent in essays uh, addressing sociological problems, philosophical issues, religious problems that have extended for centuries, going on for pages and pages and pages. And Chesterton won the essay contest with this simple answer. What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Look, the church is called to have eyes of correcting, but it must be drenched in humility. But once we have humility, there's a nature to how we express that as we move towards other people, and that's with gentleness. See, this illustration that Jesus gives with specks and planks is, is very instructive because as you move towards somebody else and you want to look at the speck in their own eye, you can't just grab it. And you can't just jam your finger into their eye. The way that we have to move towards people is with very soft gentleness. And what the illustration suggests is that it's not just a matter of what we say towards other people. The tone and the nature of how we move into other people's lives matters a great deal. In Galatians 1, or excuse me, Galatians 6, Paul is counseling the church uh, to deal with somebody who has fallen into egregious sin. And he says, here's what you must do. He says, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Dr. Phil Riken, he's the president of uh, Wheaton College, has some great comments and notes on this. He says, this word gentleness could really mean 
a, a power under control. Because what the word suggests is that when you, when you need to be gentle, you're moving into somebody's life who is very vulnerable. And what that means is they are asking questions of whether or not you're moving into their life, like, are you doing this to humiliate me? Or do you hate me? Are you saying this to ruin my life? And it suggests that you have all the power to do those things with what you're going to say and how you're addressing the situation. And what a gentle person does is understand that when you move into somebody's life like this, you are the one with power. And you are the one who has all of the ability to just wreck everything in this person's life. And what a Christian does is take that power and put it under control. And Riken says in his comments, he says, if you're somebody who sees something disruptive going on in somebody else's life, and you do not have the ability to have a tone of gentleness, to harness the power as you move into their life, he says you actually probably should not move into their life, but you should find someone else to do it. Because how you move into their life matters just as much as what is going on with that person. As if you can't just move into their life and do it any way you want it. Eyes for correcting, it requires humility, it requires gentleness, but C, it requires wisdom. See, should we move into every situation that we see with people's lives? I think what Jesus tells us in this text is, Clearly, no. Here's what this illustration of pearls to pigs means. It's, it's a brilliant leash to the idea of a speck in a brother's eye. Because think about this. What is, what is a pig? A pig is an animal who can't discern. Uh, they just want food. They just want to eat. And if you show them a pearl, they're not going to have any idea what to do with the pearl. Now, what is the pearl? Well, uh, it's probably best understood for us to look at Jesus' parable in Matthew 13 when he talks about the, the parable of the hidden treasure. He says in that parable, there's a man who found a great pearl and went out and buried it in a field. And in that context, what Jesus is talking about is the pearl is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the teachings of Jesus, it is the mode of Jesus, it is the healing of Jesus, it is the way of Jesus. And what he's talking about here in our context with pearls to pigs is he's saying, look, if a, if a pig gets that pearl, they're going to have no idea what to do with it. And they won't die, but they'll choke on it. And as they choke, they may attack you. And what he's telling us is that there are people in this world who will not be able to appreciate or understand or know what to do with the teachings of the gospel of the kingdom. And if you try to take that and shove it down their throat and they choke on that, Jesus does not say this is persecution. 
Or come to me, rejoice, great is your reward in heaven. What he actually says in the, in the, the illustration is he says, if they trample on you, you are the fool. And he sort of says, look, if you try to shove down the teachings of the gospel and the ways of, 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 of my kingdom on people who don't have the wisdom or the ability or the eyes to be able to hear it, don't come crying to me. You are the one who lacks wisdom. It is not the job of the church to go around policing the world on every single issue. Proverbs 9.8, it says, Do not rebuke mockers, or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Look, eyes for correcting takes wisdom that we can only give people things at the pace where they're able to appreciate it. What that means is, is, is there are people in their, your life who are destroying themselves, who are doing foolish things, and it is not the job of the Christian to make sure every single time they know what is right, what is holy, and how the God of the universe would speak to them on this issue. There are times we absolutely should move into people's lives to be able to do that. But to the degree that we lean into people's lives and talk to them and help them and try to move towards the speck, you have to have the wisdom to know the pace of godliness that this person can handle. You know, it's profound that Jesus says, then you'll be able to move the speck out of your brother's eye. You know what that suggests? It suggests ongoing intimate relationships. Eyes for correcting that we have to have for this world. You've got to have humility, gentleness, and wisdom. So how do we begin to have that? How do we become people like that? Well, thirdly, you have to have a heart for healing. Now, what do I mean? If you look back in the text, notice this. Jesus says in verse 1, do not judge lest you be judged. And what he's telling us there, I mentioned this earlier, is you and I should never sit in the seat where God should be because there is a part of God's character where he is a just God who all will go before one day and face judgment. But then in verse 11, what we're told is that God is also a father. Remember Jesus, he says, look, your father will not withhold these things from you. Your father will give you gifts. He will shower you with his love. And and here's what the text gives us, this, this little window into what we need to have a heart for healing. It's that you must know and understand God as both judge and father. See, if you only know God as judge, then what you'll do is you will move into every single person's life and you will want to pull the specks out of everybody's life. You will constantly be moving 
into every single people's issues. And one of the reasons is because you're so convinced that God is a judge that you live with guilt. And one of the ways to deal with your guilt is to throw it on other people and to deal with their issues so you can avoid your own. And you'll be an exhausted, miserable person to live with. But if you're somebody who only believes God is Father, you'll probably be led into codependence. Because you'll want so much that people to experience acceptance and love that you'll never be able to dive into what's going on with somebody else. And that will make you just as actually unloving as somebody who wants to crush somebody else. But what the gospel says is that God is both judge and father. And where do we know them most profoundly at that? Is at the foot of the cross. Because what happens on the cross is Jesus, the man who had no specks in his eye, who had no planks, who had nothing going on with him, who actually had a relationship with God, only his father. Do you know this? That, that there's no aspect in the Bible of knowing God as an intimate father until Jesus comes along and starts to talk and pray this way. And all along the Gospels, he just talks to God as father, as father, as father, until the cross. When he's on there, and the last thing he says is he quotes Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, what's happening is for Jesus It's no longer an intimacy of judge and father. It's only judge. So that for you and I, where we only think we have specks, we've got planks. And God for us should only be judge. But the beauty of the cross is it turns God from judge into father. So that you and I, you know what it does? Is it gives us a couple things. If you know the gospel this way, is A, it gives you safety for your planks. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, if you know the gospel, there's nothing anybody can tell you that can harm you because you know the depth of yourself. See, if you know God as judge, then you know, I've got planks in my eyes. It's not tiny specks. I've got things that are so big coming out of my life, I I have no idea how to deal with them. And so when somebody else brings up the speck in your life, you know what we typically do with that? We typically hear that without the gospel. When somebody points out something in your life, how does it feel? It feels like you're dying, right? It feels like one of the most painful things in your life. And that's because we're standing on our self-righteousness where we are standing on how people view us and not standing on the gospel. Because if you stand on the gospel, what it does is it says, nobody is telling me something that is not already true about me. And actually what the gospel does is that when people point out specks in your eyes, it helps you dive deeper into the love of God that is only available on the cross. Charles Spurgeon one time uh, was standing in the back of his church after uh, preaching to what was probably thousands of people. And he was standing there in a receiving line. And you you know how this happens. Like everybody moves through the line. 
Uh, Mr. Spurgeon, what an amazing sermon. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. And he just, you know, uh, kindly thank you for your being here. I'm glad to minister God's word to you. Until one lady one time came through, and she just looked at him and just goes, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, self-centered man I have ever heard of in my life. And she said it in front of dozens and dozens of people, and everybody's like, what's he going to say? And Spurgeon just looked at her and said, lady, you don't know the half of it. Do you know the gospel that well? That somebody could just show not just your specks, but your planks. And you're totally free in the gospel to just say, you don't know the half of it. But if you know the gospel, it will also give you perspective for other people's specks. Look, it says, so that you will be able to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Look, we do this. We move into other people's lives, not to make them feel shame, but to restore them. So that they may taste the healing of both God as judge and as father. Look, when you know the gospel, what it does is it gives you an amazing perspective of what other people need and how they must hear it. It both protects you from being a harsh person and a codependent person and sees what people need is to experience the renewing power of the gospel. Look, when something is going on in somebody's life, is your first reaction how much it's inconveniencing your own life or how this person can be restored to Christ-likeness. If you know the gospel, it gives you incredible safety for your planks, amazing perspective for other people's specs, and it gives you hope for the pearls. It is not your job to look at all the things in this culture and solve it. Look, I, I know there are many of you who watch the news, who read what's happening in the world, and, just, and you just think, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And if you had it your way, you would want to take a wand and just smack judgment and correction on tons and tons of people. And once you begin to enter into that issue, it is exhausting, Right? It is so exhausting looking at the frustrating parts of this world and wanting to fix them all. Look, you need hope for your pearls. There's a lot of wisdom in just withdrawing from some of these issues and knowing God is a judge. It is not my job to judge and fix all these issues. And I can step away knowing God will one day deal with this. And some of us on a personal level have people in our life who we're worried about doing that with. I'll give you an amazing story that gives you a perspective on how this looks. Um, there's a well-known preacher uh, who's had an amazing ministry who uh, had a son who hated his ministry. Just was walking 
away from the church, wanted nothing to do with his teachings, nothing to do with what he believed in. And, and that pastor one day called uh, a church where my brother-in-law actually was working. And nobody was there to answer the phone but my brother-in-law. And so my brother-in-law talked to this uh, minister on the phone and was caught off guard, like, why are you calling our church? And the man said, my son uh, is playing a rock concert in your town. And I've purchased a ticket. Would you please go and support him? and just be at the concert, and represent me, and just encourage him so he has somebody there. And so my brother-in-law was like, absolutely, I'll go do that. So he goes to the concert, and uh, he said it was a sort of a wild uh, crowd, a wild event. But he goes to speak to the man after, or the kid after the show, and starts talking to him and engaging him about life and my brother-in-law's gifted in conversation. So they had a very natural, organic conversation. But at one point, he just said, what do you think of your dad? And he said, you know what? I, I don't believe anything my dad um, believes or says or teaches. But you know what? No one loves me like my dad. And you know what's incredible about that kid? is years later, he came back to the faith and went to work for his dad. Because what his father did is he had the ability to have a relationship where his son clearly knew what he believed. But he also had this incredible tenderness and gentleness about him where his son could stand in a different life from his father but simultaneously say, no one loves me and welcomes me like him. Go be a church like that. Go treat your friends like that. Go treat your children like that. Your heavenly Father will not withhold good things from you. Make that abundantly clear as you navigate specks in other people's lives, and you even begin to open it up for the planks in your own. Let me pray. Father, this is uh, profound teaching. Hard to hear, but beautiful if we can begin to embrace and live in the gospel. Lord, would you help us believe the gospel right now? That all of us need to know you both as judge and as father. That, Lord, we come, if we were to see ourselves the way you see us, with planks in our eyes, not specks. But Jesus paid it all. That we may call you not judge, but just father. And know you the be- know the beauty of your full character, Lord. Help us to embody that as we go out into the world and try to wisely navigate these issues that we're going through. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.